Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to grab and make your way to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 20. Growing up in Georgia, one of the things that I loved to do was to go to Six Flags over Georgia. We would do it uh, when I was a kid. Every, like in the fall at some point, my, my mom worked for a company in Georgia called Georgia Power. And uh, she worked at one of the power plants there. And once a year, they would rent out the entire park for Georgia Power Night. And so when you went, it was just employees on that night of Georgia Power. And so I think I can still remember the first time that I went, probably like 83 or so. And the first roller coaster I ever rode was one called the Dahlonega Mine Train. Right now, it's basically a kiddie ride. Uh, But at the time, it was, you know, like one of a couple of roller coasters that they had. And, and I loved it. And every time we go now, we try to go once a year. It didn't work out this year, but we try to go once a year. And I always want to go ride that ride again, just because when you go into like that wooden station where it's at and the grease and the smell of the wood and everything, it's smells are really nostalgic for me. And so I love going in there and, and we just ride that. But Another thing about walking around Six Flags or, or maybe Disney World as well, I've never been there so I don't know, but there are always different like artists that are out there doing caricature drawings of people who, who are paying money. You guys know what, what a caricature drawing is? So we've got one, I'll show you on the screen. You should recognize this, right? Tennessee fans should recognize this back in the good old days of Tennessee football. Hey, we got, we got rolled by Clemson, so I have no, no, I can't talk about anything. But anyhow, Peyton Manning, but the way caricatures work, so if you look closely, I mean, the way they work is they emphasize or overemphasize certain aspects of a person, and they minimize other aspects of a person, right? You can see that there, it overemphasizes his chin, his nose, his forehead, underemphasizes or minimizes certain things, all right? That's what we do a lot of times with God, or we try to do with God. We will try to caricature him into an image that fits us, into what we want God to look like. And so we will overemphasize certain aspects, right, that we like, that appeal to us about God, and we'll minimize other aspects that that we don't like so much. We, We think that we can try to remake God into our image. And just like those artists, it's completely up to them what they overemphasize and what they minimize. And we think it's the same with us when it comes to the God of the Bible. And we'll say, you know, I'm going to minimize this and I'm going to overemphasize this and I'm actually going to totally ignore this because I don't like that at all. And we just recreate him into our own image. And when we do that, what we're actually doing is we're saying, I'm my own God. Like I define if there is a God and if there is, I define what he's like and I define what is right and wrong and I define what is true and false and I define all of these things based upon how they fit me and for what I want God to be like. And that may work for a caricature drawing at Six Flags, but that does not work for the God of the universe who controls heaven and hell. We don't have the right. Like Clay doesn't talk back to the potter. And this is what chapter 20 of 1 Kings really cries out to us about. Do not caricature God. Do not try to recreate him in your own image that will lead to your destruction. Because like it or not, he's God, you're not. He sets the rules, we don't. And so in particular, chapter 20, I think really 
calls out three ways that, that maybe we're prone to caricature God. And, and, and we're going to reverse it and, and just kind of talk about do not caricature God in these ways. So I'll go ahead and give them to you. These are your notes. But the first one is do not caricature God's grace. Do not caricature God's power. And do not caricature God's judgment. And chapter 20 shows us this. And so... Again, 1 Kings chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardback one around you. We're going to be on page 302. And this chapter is just a war-saturated chapter that's got some crazy stuff. We're going to see a king who gets drunk with his 32, like other kings, and then they try to fight a, a, a battle, like in a drunken stupor. We're going to see a city wall fall on 27,000 people. We're going to see a lion kill a prophet because he refuses to punch another prophet in the face. This, this is all in here. But it's got so much to teach us at the same time. So let's look at it. Page 302, 1 Kings chapter 20. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. All right, this is probably the second. About Ben-Hadad the second because there's been one mentioned in, first, in, in chapter 15. Anyhow, he gathers all his army together. 32 kings, which are basically kind of tribal leaders, were with him. And horses and chariots. And he came up and closed in on Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Remember, the kingdom's been split now. And he fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab. So evil Ahab, still in charge, he and Jezebel. Sent into the, to King Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad. Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. Just laying it down. Like, I'm taking over. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. So he just rolls over. He doesn't even try to defend his family. He doesn't even try to defend his wives. He doesn't even try to defend his kids and his kingdom. Just rolls over. So Ben-Hadad's like, man, he rolled over so easily. I should press for a little bit more. So verse 5, he comes back. The messengers come again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your, your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. And they shall... Look at this. Search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. It's not enough to have his submission. He wants his humiliation. And then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you first demanded your servant I will do. But this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought word and brought him word again. And so now verse 10, we're going to begin engaging in a little pre-game, pre-war trash talk. So verse 10, Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. In other words, I've got so many soldiers, my victory is going to be so complete that there's not going to be enough dust left of your land for them to grab a handful to take home as a souvenir from the Holy Land. 
And so Ahab fires back, let him, verse 11, let him who straps on his armor boast himself. Let me read it again. Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself like he who takes it off. In other words, it's one thing to, to, you know, talk smack when you're putting on your helmet, when you're putting on your shoulder pads. It's something else to be the one giving the post-game interview because you just destroyed them. But that's all, all he can do. He can't, like, he has no powers. We're going to see, like, no power here. All he can do is try to trash talk a little bit. He knows he's completely overpowered. He knows, kind of bring up Tech and Clemson again, he knows that he's about to get rolled like Georgia Tech did by Clemson. It is about to happen. He knows that. And then suddenly, hope comes into this helpless situation by the word of God, because out of a blue, out of the blue, a prophet appears. Look at verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord. So thus says Ben-Hadad, shut up. Thus says the Lord. Here's what's going to happen. Let's see who wins this. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you, here's why, shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? He said, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts, i.e., like I'm going to send in the JV team so that you will know that I am the Lord and we're going to defeat these people. And then he said, who shall lead, who shall begin the battle? And he answered, you. And then he actually obeyed, shockingly. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And then he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon. While Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts. And they reported to him, men are coming out, of, out from Samaria, and he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. Now that sentence makes, that statement makes absolutely no sense. Why? Because he's drunk, right? He's wasted. This is, uh, it makes no sense unless like, I mean, they've been drinking themselves under the table. No sense. I mean, just, when I read it, this is how I imagine it sounding he said if they come out for peace take them alive and if they come out for war take them alive right makes no sense none whatsoever no sense at all and so just kind of a side note this is another reminder why God in his grace says, don't get drunk. Because when you get drunk, you say stupid stuff and you do stupid stuff. Stuff that you normally regret. So don't get drunk. Back to the story though, verse 19. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. Nothing will sober you up like a horse ride. 
And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. And so there's victory. They won. But then verse 22, the prophet came near to the king of Israel second time and said to him, come strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come against you again. <clears throat> all right, he's going to come again. And so you've got all of this going on. I mean, we read a lot there. But notice this. On the eve of the tail kicking that Ahab is about to endure, just out of the blue, the prophet showed up, right? Ahab did not go out seeking him. He just showed up with a word of hope. And then on top of that, God promises, hey, I'm going to win this victory for you. And so you know that it's me. I'm going to send the JV into the game. And they're going to win it. So you know that Yahweh is the Lord. And so you've got all this help happening. And Ahab sought none of it. And as we think about the last few chapters where we've seen this guy, we can't help but ask why is such kindness being shown to Ahab, like the Ahab of chapters 17, 18, and 19? Uh, why does this king of chapter 16, verses 29 through 34, who the writer calls the most evil king ever in Israel, why does he receive any goodness from the Lord? The answer is grace. Grace, and, and what we're seeing here is grace in its most offensive form. Because what grace is, by definition, it's undeserved. Ahab does not deserve it, right? By definition, grace is unmerited favor, unmerited. And so again, this is number one in your notes. Do not caricature God's grace as if some folks deserve it and other folks don't. Do not caricature God's grace. The, the truth is, we are all Ahabs. All of us. We are all undeserving. No one in this room, no one on this planet deserves God's grace. But we kind of want to live under a myth that we, that we, that we kind of do. We want to live under this myth that we're, we're actually good people who just happen to sometimes do bad things. But if you're a good person, then why do you do bad things? And somebody says, well, because no one's perfect. That's the point. No one lives up to the holy righteousness of God. No one, not one of us. And I'm not even talking about us on our bad days. I'm talking about us on our best days. We at our best do not live up, do not deserve the favor and justification of God Almighty. We are all sinners through and through. And so if you're new to Christianity or just kind of thinking about it a little bit, I want to make sure you understand something. The Bible does not teach that there are like good people and there are bad people and God loves the good people. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches that there are bad people and there are Jesus. And there are, there is Jesus. That's what the, the, there, there are, are bad people and there is Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. 
And so we are all in this together. This isn't good people, bad people. There's bad people and there's Jesus. So we are all in the same boat. So there's no need for chest thumping based upon your, you know, morality level or whatever. We are all sinners before God and deserving of punishment because we all sin and we all rebel. This is what makes the gospel truly good news. We don't get what we deserve. In Christ, we don't get what we deserved. He got what we deserved. He went to the cross in our place. First, he lived a perfect life of sinlessness. None of us have lived that. Then he died on the cross in our place for our sin, what we all deserve to do. And then he rose again in victory over sin and death to give forgiveness to anyone who would repent and believe. Anyone who would repent and believe. And so don't caricature God's grace as if it's just for good people. His friends, there aren't good people. There's bad people and there's Jesus. And we all need Jesus. We all need him. But understand also, this grace is not only undeserved, it's demanding as well. Like it's undeserved, but it's also demanding. Right? It, 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 it does not mean for Ahab and Israel here, or for you and I to remain untouched. That they and, and, and we, you know, like we, we are responsible for responding to this grace. The prophet makes that clear in verse 13. When he says, and behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, the king of Israel. Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day and you shall know that I am the Lord. Like you will see what I'm about to do and then you will acknowledge me. You will respond to the grace that I'm going to give you. That's the pattern. Grace, undeserved, unasked for, and then acknowledged. Right? And that's what we've seen. Many of you have experienced this in your life, both in salvation, grace, undeserved, unasked for, acknowledged, received, and then just in your lives, things happening. Grace, undeserved, unasked for. And then you see it and you praise God for what he's done in your life. That's, that's the pattern. But for Ahab, it was undeserved, unasked for, and unacknowledged. He did not acknowledge. But grace is offered to any and everyone. Freely. It's, there's no prerequisites to it. Completely undeserved. But you must respond to it. You must receive it and then seek to live in light of it. Which means we don't live with some sort of mindset of a secular sacred divide. No, no, no. We submit our public life, our private life, our family life, our work life, our school life, our hobby life, our own and all, all of our life. We submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to glorify him in every way. And so don't caricature God's grace in, in this way either. In, in a sense of like big word antinomianism, which just means God's going to forgive me so I can do whatever the heck I want. Don't caricature his grace that way. No, no, you live with that mindset. No, he's not. It just shows you don't, you, you, you haven't trusted Christ. 
You just want to get out a hell-free card. You, you, you treat Jesus as if he's a means to an end when, no, he is the end. You've got to flip your script there. Do not caricature God's grace by thinking it's not for the Ahabs of the world and do not caricature God's grace by thinking it's a do whatever I want and get out of hell free card. God's grace is undeserved and it's demanding. Don't caricature it. That's number one. Number two, do not caricature God's power. Do not caricature God's power. Look at verse 23 with me. All right, so here we go, round two of this military fight. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, in the valleys. Sure, surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings from each each from his post and put commanders in their places and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. And then we will fight against them in the valley, in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So this is basically like halftime adjustments. Like we saw what went wrong in the first half. We're going to make some adjustments here and then let's go on with it. And so verse 26, In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. And the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. So if the first round was like JV versus the Titans, this is like a collection of the elementary school's best players versus the Titans. And a man of God, here we go, third time, came near. Undeserved, unasked for. And said to the king of Israel, thus says the Lord. Because the Syrians have said the Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. And then on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek. And the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. And so what I want you to see here is like, like, like I just said, they, they made these, you know, halftime adjustments. And in doing so, did you notice what they did to God? What they said about God. They completely caricatured his power. They said he was a God just of the hills. Not of the valleys. Just of the hills. In other words, he's good for this, but not for that. He could do this, but he can't do that. Friends, is this you? Is this you? Is this me? Do we do this? Do we caricature God in this way? God, you can do this, but you can't do that. I can't possibly trust you for that. And I would say we probably would not ever, you know, outright deny that God doesn't have, you know, power over both hills and valleys. But we are far, far more often than we'd probably admit 
pretty pagan in how we think about him. As we do think about him in those ways, it's just a little more sophisticated, perhaps, and thus less obvious. But really no different in principle. See, sometimes Syrian theology like this shows up in deistic beliefs. Deistic. For example, Benjamin Franklin wrote to the evangelist George Whitfield. Franklin was a deist. And he wrote this. I rather suspect from certain circumstances that though the general government of the universe is well administered, our particular little affairs are perhaps below notice and left to take the chance of human prudence or imprudence as either may happen to be uppermost. That is, Franklin believed that God governs and controls the big show, but he doesn't get himself involved with the mucky details. It's God of the hills and valleys all over again. God operates in the broad strokes of the universe. Don't expect him to be involved in your life. So Franklin was essentially a Syrian. Are you? Are you? There's a big guy, but he's not involved in my life. Or maybe it's the complete opposite heresy. You believe he's intricately involved in all the little things going on in your life. My my kids' boo-boos and the virus that they have. And you're just completely focused on yourself and how God works in this and this and this. That you forget he's also the God of history. He's in control of all things at all times. Everything was made by him and for him. And everything's, you know, flowing back to him. He upholds the world, you know, by his power. You forget he's the God of Isaiah 46 that we read earlier. The point here is that God is unlimited. He is not limited in any way whatsoever. Nothing can limit God. He's unlimited in his power to save. He's unlimited in his, like physically and spiritually, he's unlimited in his power to destroy. He is God and there is no other. He is the God of this and that. He is the God of the hills and the valleys. And for anyone who knows Jesus in a personal way, this should be encouraging to you. Because it means like, if his power is unlimited, that means there's hope for all of the impossibilities of life. Because God is unlimited, the, the unlimited God gives hope for the work of world missions. I mean, we look around the world and we think, oh, there's no way the gospel will ever get to that point. We're not believing that God's the God of the hills and the valleys. No, but he is. He's the God of America. He's over America. He's a God. He's over Afghanistan. He's over Canada. He's over Sudan. He's a God of the hills and the valleys. There's nothing that's not underneath him, subservient to him. The question is, do we believe that and live that way? Or are we functional Ben Haddad's? And caricature God's power to save. Jesus will have his people from every tribe, tongue and nation. That will happen. Nothing can stop that. Do not caricature his grace or his power. The unlimited God also gives hope for victory over sin. See, sometimes we, you know, feel so defeated by the power of sin. 
in our own lives, maybe in the lives of those that we love. As we see people and they're in bondage to alcohol, they're in bondage to drugs, others in the grip of sexual sin, of whatever stripe or variety that may be. Others are enslaved by, you know, eating disorders. Others are enslaved by, you know, who knows what it may be. And so sometimes we feel so defeated by sin and we begin to doubt that there's victory in Jesus. But folks, God is the God of the valleys and the hills, right? Both of those. He's a God of, for sinners and for saints. And he's unlimited in his ability to break through the power of reigning sin. We need only to admit that we are sinners through and through and we have no hope in ourselves. But there is hope in Christ. Throw yourself upon Christ. Upon His grace. And the unlimited power of God. Apart from God, we we can't do anything in this. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The unlimited God also gives us hope for healing broken relationships. You have a broken relationship, there's hope in the unlimited God. Philip Riken loves it, or loves it. I love the way Philip Riken, start again. Philip Riken puts it like this, and I love the way he puts it. Sometimes a marriage or a parent-child relationship reaches the Humpty Dumpty state. When it seems like all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put Humpty together again. But if we know Jesus in a personal and saving way, then we're not dealing with the king's horses and the king's men. We're dealing with the king himself. And he is unlimited. The king of the valleys as well as the king of the hills. He is the God of the cross and the empty tomb. The God of resurrection life. And therefore he is unlimited in his power to restore intimacy between a husband and a wife and between a parent and and a child. Friends, the unlimited power of God blasts through all the impossibilities of life. And so do not caricature His power to work in His world. No matter how high the hill, God is the God of that hill. No matter how low the valley, God rules in that valley as well. He is unlimited. Don't caricature his power. It's number two. And then finally, number three. Do not caricature God's judgment. Do not caricature God's judgment. Look at verse 31. Actually, the last half of verse 30. Ben-Hadad also, we're going to have a crazy ending here. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servant said to him, Behold, now we have heard that the, the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Very, you know, trying to show themselves penitent here and remorseful. And Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel. And said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. 
And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign and they quickly took it up from him and said, yes, your brother, him, Ben-Hadad. And then he said, go and bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he caused him to come up into the chariot, the king's chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father, I will restore. And you may establish bazaars, markets for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. And so he made a covenant with him and let him go. And so you've got the tables. They've completely flip-flopped. God's given the victory to uh, Ahab over Ben-Hadad. And so Ben-Hadad, like plan A work, uh, failed, plan B failed. So plan C begged for mercy. So that's what he comes and does. He begs for mercy. They have a royal chit-chat in the chariot about, you know, economic uh, concessions, territorial sovereignty, and so on. And then Ahab wrongly lets this warmonger go. And just in a crazy section of Scripture, God calls him on it. So look at verse 35. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow... All right, now note this, okay? At the command of the Lord. So this is a command from God. Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Actually, this is the second time this has happened in First Kings. And then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed. And waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he's missing, your life shall be for his life. Or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand, the man whom I had devoted to destruction. Therefore, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen. I mad and came to Samaria. And so the whole point of this crazy story is just for us to see the seriousness of God's word and the seriousness of his judgment. Because remember, I mean, the text clearly says like this is something that God has ordered. It is ordered, you know, hey, go get someone to punch you in the face, Right. He ordered that. So this isn't some wacko idea that he dreamed up or concocted of his own. This is something that's demanded, authorized by God. And the guy doesn't do it. He disobeys God. So in a weird way, he doesn't punch him. That's sin because he's disobeying the word of God. And so a lion kills the man for his disobedience. 
Judgment came instantly. All right, and then he goes and he finds another guy and he does punch him in the face. And so we can complain about how weird this is and that would be both true and beside the point. Because the point is that it's not safe to ignore God's word. It's not safe to ignore God's word. And the disobedient prophet here becomes a picture of the disobedient king. And so having gotten sufficiently, you know, wounded in the face, punched in the face, the prophet springs into action in a very Nathan-like sense. Nathan with David. So if you know the story of David when he committed, uh, you know, had an affair with Bathsheba, Nathan came to him and told him a little story about, you know, lambs. How this one guy, you know, stole a lamb, his favorite lamb from this other guy. Nathan, what do you, or David, what do you think about that? How would you judge in that? And he's like, well, he should, you know, he should be condemned or whatever. And Nathan cries out to him, you are that man, right? That's exactly what happens here, except the prophet, instead of telling a story, he like acts it out. And so he comes to the guy and, you know, he's like, hey, uh, come to Ahab. I, I, I was, you know, in the battle and I, I got this POW and I was told if I lose him, then my life would be forfeit. But, and, and it's kind of hilarious if you look at verse 40, how he, but as your servant was, was busy here and there, like, come up with a better excuse, dude. That's not, as you probably but here and there, all of a sudden he was gone. And so the king's like, that's a lame excuse. Yes, you will pay for his life with your life. And then the prophet takes off his bandage and the king realizes it's a prophet. And the prophet looks him in the eye and says, it's going to be the same for you. You let Ben-Hadad go. Like, you are the man. You let Ben-Hadad go. And now your life will be taken because of that. And so we look at this and it's bleak. Judgment. And judgment's coming. This guy, he's going, I mean, we'll see it in chapter 20, 21 and 22 next week. We will see justice fall on Ahab. But for today, I just want to highlight the fact that the unlimited God of the universe isn't to be trifled with. We can't monkey with him, caricature him, change him. He's not to be taken lightly. He does what he says he's going to do. And so when he says, I will judge, when he says judgment is coming, he's not playing. we've, We've gotten so fearful of like fire and brimstone that we almost have like taken the fact that God will bring judgment out of our... We ignore it. We caricature God. We forget that judgment, like he will bring judgment. There will be a reckoning. This is going to happen. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound a whole lot like Jesus. My friend, that argument just shows you actually don't know a whole lot about Jesus. Jesus talked about hell and judgment more than anybody else in the Bible. I'll give you one example. Mark chapter 9. Verse 42, he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, you don't have to turn there, just listen. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into, into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so maybe you need a good dose of 1 Kings 20 today. You need to see that God holds the right to judge. You need to be reminded of that and that He will judge. He doesn't change His Word. We can't caricature Him and say, I don't like this, so I'm going to minimize this. I don't like this, so I'm going to ignore this. We can't do that with God. You can't caricature away His judging. We can't caricature away that He has wrath, because He does. But friends, at the same time, that just serves all the more to highlight the grace of God. Because if he has all this wrath, if he has all this judgment, then how crazy is it that he saves? Like judgment, wrath, that's standard. We deserve that. We're sinners. That's so the, the, the message of the Bible that's so weird isn't that he has wrath, but is that he would choose to save us. Any of us who repent and believe. And so the question is, will you respond to Jesus with genuine repentance and faith? Or will you play games like Ahab and go your own way to your own destruction? God doesn't want that for you. That's why you're here this morning. And so respond to Him with faith. Because those who refuse to, you'll face something worse than a hungry lion. And so God stands ready to save you, if you are a believer, to change you, to grow you, to work in you, to be there for you and work in you and through you. He stands ready to do that, but you must respond to the God of Scripture, not the caricatured God of your imagination. He, his grace is great. His power is unlimited. And His judgment is coming. Both for Ahab in the stories as we move forward next week and in each one of our lives. And so flee to Christ. The real one. Not your caricatured one. The real one's arms are open wide. Let's pray. God, fill us with the sense and the knowledge and the undergirding foundation that you are God of the hills and valleys. That any valley that we may be in in our lives right now, that we may be facing, that you're there. You're not absent. And any difficulty we're walking through, any valley of the shadow of death we may be facing, you're there. You're not absent. 
You are truly God of the hills and valleys. And God, remind us, as we've talked about, that you do have judgment. That is a real thing. But you have grace. Not based upon anything we do. Based upon what Christ did. Undeserved. And so as we come now to a time of a special time of communing with you in a very special way by receiving the bread and the juice, would you remind us both of how truly undeserving we are because of our sinfulness, but would you also fill us with great thankfulness and hope, with great wonder and love of you for what you have done for us in the cross. Oh, you're so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen.